0: SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 27 with guest David Campbell. Our guest today is David Campbell. David is a Technical Fellow for the Strategy, Infrastructure and Architecture of Microsoft SQL Server. David graduated with a Master's Degree in Mechanical Engineering, Robotics from Clarkson University in 1984 and began working on robotic work cells for Sanders Associates, later a division of Lockheed Corporation. In 1990, he joined Digital Equipment Corporation where he worked on their CODISIL database product DEC-DBMS as well as their relational database product RDB. Upon joining Microsoft in 1994, David was a developer and architect on the SQL Server storage engine team that was principally responsible for rewriting the core engine of SQL Server for SQL Server version 7. David holds several patents in the data management, schema, and software quality realms as a frequent speaker at industry and research conferences on a wide variety of data management and software development topics. Welcome, David.
1: Thanks, Greg. I um,
0: have to say, first up, really, really pleased to have you on the show. Uh, I was mentioned to people often, I have a, a number of, I think, absolute heroes in amongst the SQL Server realm, and with the work you guys did, uh, bringing it forward from the old days of uh, version 4 and version 6, uh, you certainly qualify as one of the heroes, <laughs> so that's great.
1: It's been a long and interesting uh, ride. It <laughs> changes both in the team and the product over the course of the last 10 to 15 years.
0: Oh, yes. Well... What I do with most guests is get them to describe first up just how you came to ever be involved in it in the first place.
1: With SQL Server? Yeah, I can start. uh, Well, I was at Digital, and um, it was interesting that Oracle bought the product that I was working on at Digital, and uh, there were a number of us who sort of looked around at that point um and decided we'd like to go work for Bill Gates and crew rather than Larry Ellison and crew and uh you know, some people stayed on with the Oracle acquisition. Some came to Microsoft, some went to Informa Sybase. and so um, it's kind of interesting with friends all over the industry. And uh so a bunch of us came from digital in the summer of nineteen ninety four. Um, and as you probably know others came from IBM and some came later and some from Oracle and Sybase. So A bunch of folks came together, and uh, we sort of remade SQL Server. It's been an interesting and fun time.
0: (laughs) Indeed. the I suppose uh, the the big change originally was the change to SQL Server 7? Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a major um, architectural change, obviously. And I think uh, some people know the story at this point, but uh, there was a team um, that had come in, and they were starting to work on a query processor from a clean sheet of paper, so they basically started uh, from the ground up, and I was working on the storage engine team with a bunch of other folks. And when we started uh, thinking about the next version of SQL Server after SQL 6.5, uh, the thing that we were getting beaten up on in the market was row-level locking, and that's a feature that Oracle yeah. had that uh, the Sybase, you know, sort of code uh, generation that we'd come from um, did not. And so we looked at putting row-level locking in the Sybase architecture and uh, it was very, very difficult because the entire Sybase architecture is predicated on page locking, the whole entire yeah. recovery subsystem, um, and uh, it was uh, quite a challenge. So we did put together a design but had to make a number of compromises uh, to design the thing on paper, and we were sort of struggling with how we were going to pull this off and ultimately came to the conclusion that the, that architecture did not have a lot of headroom. So even if we could shoehorn in row level locking uh, in five years, given you know where things are at, and the product really wouldn't be relevant. So it was a, a gut wrenching decision, but ultimately one that paid off.
0: Yes, indeed. And what, I suppose one of the challenges whenever you do that sort of rewrite is uh, that there will no doubt have been behaviors in the previous product that don't necessarily match the documentation. Mm -hmm. And you always run that chance that as you move forward, even though you might make it work the way it's supposed to, you you may break a whole lot of things.
1: Uh, You're absolutely right. Uh, And there's a couple of great examples, which I think you probably already know, given (laughs) the way you asked the question. But um, and I'll give a little bit of a little bit underneath the hood kind of look at this. Um, This uh, Sybase I think did a great job designing uh, the database system that they did for, say, the mid to late '80s. But by the mid nineties things had advanced so far um, that it was beginning to show its age and every page in a side table was linked together with a you know a doubly linked list on the yeah. next page and the previous page. And so the only way you could reliably scan a table um, was to you know read a page and then find out what the next page was. And so you couldn't do deep read ahead um, to do really, really uh you know efficient IO. Yeah. And um, the other challenge was that the sidebase page size was only two kilobytes. Um, which is a, a great choice if you're doing page locking, so you don't overlock. Yeah. Uh, but it's not a very good choice, you know, as uh, processors became more efficient and, and disks didn't relatively. So um, one of the things we did was we actually changed the on disk format, which is another big jump, but we optimized um, how we actually uh, allocated pages and kept track of them, such that we could do scans without having to follow the page pointers. So here's where you know answer your question. Yeah. Um, so in SQL, you know, 6.5 and earlier, if you did uh, just a select star from a table that had a clustered index on it,
2: yeah,
1: um, the rows would be returned in clustered index order.
0: Yes, and I still see that group... as a myth all over the internet. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, that is uh, that was just a side effect of the way it was implemented. Of course, the SQL standard doesn't specify any order in terms of the results coming back, unless you put an order by on it. Yeah. Um, but a lot of po- people actually uh, relied on that particular quirk in behavior, and in order for us to do really efficient scans, um, we didn't want to maintain that, and so we actually changed it for SQL 7.0. Uh, but we retained, a f- we actually put a flag into the product, which we've kept for you know from that point on, uh, for yeah. different releases, which was a backwards compatibility flag. Um, which, when a database was in that mode, we'd retain the older behavior, um, with some you know changes and perhaps uh, less efficient uh, performance, yeah. uh, because we couldn't use some of the latest optimizations.
0: Yeah, actually, I see a very similar situation with that at the moment with uh, ordered views, where people mm-hmm. were doing select top one hundred percent order by, in mm-hmm. a view. And I noticed that in 2005 then that stopped working, uh, mm-hmm. but I noticed recently there's a hot fix or something that seems to put the behavior back. So I mm-hmm. was <laughs> sort of wondering what your thoughts are there.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's always a struggle between the benefit and you know the the pain that people are feeling, particularly when I mean, you can look at it and say, look, okay, we're in the right with respect to the standard, yeah. um, but if there are a bunch of people relying on the behavior, um, then you may want to go put it back. Now, the, the thing that we felt when we made that decision for 7.0 um, was that the potential benefits were so great um, that we wanted to make that be the default behavior. So yeah. That's, uh, that's one right one
0: question I do have about the on-disk format, while we're just mentioning that, uh, you mentioned that the 8K page size now is much more useful than the 2K one. The mm-hmm. The whole concept of mixed extents still mm-hmm. seems a little strange to me given the size of disks and, and
2: objects
1: mm-hmm. oh, that's another a great question so um, <laughs> when we were doing the work on SQL 7.0 uh, we felt at some point we might use uh, the engine to um, basically serve as a, the engine for access at some point or an alternate engine for access and yeah. um, one of the things that we wanted was the ability to place a database on a floppy disk and the standard floppy disk size at that point was 1.4
2: megabytes oh yes
1: and um if you go way back to six oh and 6.5, you also remember that um the the database was actually databases were implemented it had a simple file system built on top of files really, so you had the segments and such. Yeah. Um and so the other thing we did in seven oh was to try to separate it such that we could just attach databases um, without having to allocate them within the storage pool um, in the in the way that the previous releases had done. So those changes came around about and including mixed extents to make small tables more efficient. So, mixed extents allows us, you know, small tables uh, to consume only a single 8K page instead of a full 64 kilobyte extent if they only contain a few rows.
0: Does it add a level of complexity? Um,
1: it does add a, a little complexity into the code, um, yeah. but it's at the point where, actually, in fact, we optimize it out at some point. So, if, if we are creating an index or doing select into in a case where we know that we're going to have more than 64 kilobytes, um, we just start out with extent allocations, um, and that you know the knowledge of that is pretty much localized within the allocation manager. So.
2: Yeah,
0: that's great. Well, moving forward, of course, this is the first of the shows where we're discussing uh, SQL two, Server 2008 in some depth. The probably the biggest change that most people have noticed uh, so far has been in the CTP process and how mm-hmm. you're building the product
1: yeah that's a that was a, a major change after we had shipped SQL Server two thousand and five. Uh, and you know if I just kind of go back and run through history quickly from the perspective of developing the product. yeah um, when we first came and started working on the product, the, the team was actually very small. And um, if we had an issue, we could walk across the hall and talk to somebody and kind of work things out real time. <laughs> um, but as the scope of the product grew became more complex, and the scope of the team grew, Um, we had to basically factor things both in the code and in the teams. And in SQL 2005, we got to the point where we had uh, specific component teams and fairly large component teams working on, say, the client access, some folks working on protocols, the query processor storage engine and such. And we had a process whereby each team working on a feature um, had a process that they would follow in terms of writing a specification, writing a test plan, reviewing the test plan, um, and getting it all going before they check things into the, to the code management system. Yeah. And the challenge that we had was that this was a serial process. So, um, we'd design a feature, kind of get together, and then the storage engine guys might start first, and they would do their work, they'd write their spec, they'd run their test, get the test to run, and they'd check it in, and several weeks later the query processor guys would pick it up, and they'd start working on it, and, yeah. and of course they'd realize, hey, this interface is not quite right, so, go back and negotiate with the storage engine guys who of course had moved on to something else at that point. And so um, this really took a lot of back and forth and wasn't very efficient. And uh, in the worst cases, um, in complex features that had a lot of interdependencies, you know, some things would happen such as you'd put it all together end to end and it just didn't work the way anyone had envisioned. Um, or you'd start from one component team and let's say five component teams had to have their hands involved in it and you'd get through three of them, and then basically it was time to ship the release. So yeah. um, we had situations in uh, management studio where things weren't complete end-to-end or weren't surfaced uh, completely uh, because at the end they just didn't have the time to finish it up. So what we tried to do uh, for the new development process is to shift things around whereby we would form improvement teams. And uh, rather than calling them features, we call them improvements because there's some things we do internally to the product that, really on a feature from the customer perspective, but um, will lead to a more efficient thing or clean some things up inside the the code. So we refer to them as improvements, and we put together a cross-discipline development test and program management and cross-component team, Team, so all the components involved get together. And this team basically figures out what they need to build, and they go talk to the customers, um, and they stick together until the thing is ready uh to RTM or integrate into the source management system. So their attitude now is that I'm working on this and I'm completing it and I'm making sure that it works end-to-end. And in some cases, I'm validating it with customers before it ever reaches into the main line of the source code system. The other advantage this has is that um, whereas in the past, when we did a beta, we'd have you know N100 features for the first beta that might be working at 50% each, And then beta 2, they might be working at 70% each. And then we'd realize that, hey, there's too much here for us to finish. So we'd wind up cutting things at that point. And so um, let me describe how the changes actually surface. And I think you've seen this in terms of the CTPs for SQL Server 2008. So instead of um, an external profile, you see the release unfolding as follows. that there's a whole bunch of features that are, you know, to some degree of done this for beta one and two. And then some of them go away as we realize that we can't finish them. Yeah. And then in the end, you wind up with things that are fully implemented in the engine, but less so in the, you know, the tools and such. Yeah. And what we'll see with this release is that, um, we'll have a smaller set of features that are improvements that come in CTP by CTP. But our expectation, and this is holding true, is that they will be pretty much complete end-to-end and of high quality. And so it looks much different um, if you're consuming the CTPs. Um, but what we're seeing is that the release is of very high quality, um, and we're getting very, very good feedback. Now, the challenge, of course, in this, and I think if I let you ask the question right now, you'd probably say this, mm-hmm. um, is that, hey, if it's all done at the point where we think we're putting in the code system, how do we get feedback from customers? Yeah. And, yeah, and that's, um, frankly, I, I see that as a
2: that. yeah.
0: I see that as a major challenge because uh, I've had uh, a number of areas where the very first time we've seen it, even in like a pre-release CTP or something, uh, we've come back and said, "Hey, uh, we really don't like this. You know, it needs to be something different." And mm-hmm. the response invariably is too late.
1: Yeah, that's a that is a challenge. Um, and one of the ways that we're learning how to deal with that is um, to Involve some of the MVPs and key customers, um, up front is part of the design process, not the validation process where you throw yep. something else there and just try to iterate, but actually bring folks in who are a representative, um, sample, if you will, of, um, you know, people who are very interested in that particular improvement. Yeah. Um, and then actually do a joint design and validation. So by the time it goes in, um, they've already had their hand in designing it and helping us uh, look at it end to end. So that's one thing that we've done in some cases. And the other thing that we've done is a um, thing we call private CTPs, where for more complex features where we realize that um, we're going to need some feedback, we're going to need some people to kick the tires, uh, we've put together private CTPs um, and shown them to a you know, representative uh, group of people to get their feedback before we complete it. And yeah. so these things we sort of recognized the need and started to work those processes Um, during the course of the development, SQL Server 2008. I think those will refine that um, for subsequent releases.
0: Yeah, I I, I certainly see that as one of the challenges. I think the other thing that I'm finding a little bit continuity-wise is that, for example, I had things with uh, the way some of the CLR integration was done and we sort of talked at length with the previous product manager but then by the time it got into this cycle, it was then a different product manager. Mm-hmm. And the very first chance we saw what was done, we've talked to him and he's gone, oh, great idea. <laughs> but it was almost like all of those previous discussions with the other person didn't ever happen. And mm-hmm. so I, th- I think there's also that challenge of uh w- whether you have the continuity across versions of the people heading up the different
1: areas. hmm as, yeah uh, some of that uh, is um, honestly that the process was up until this release uh, focused on people and people centric and yeah. you have the right relationship and you know is it in that person's head um, as we've gotten a little bit more formal, one of the things that we're looking at is here, how do we gather requirements and how do we thoughtfully go through them and in particular, Um, how do we ensure that we are finishing and following through on things um, release after release? Now, there's one interesting thing about SQL Server 2008, if I take the engine as an example.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, Because we looked at it more in terms of uh, we were more thoughtful up front about what the market needed and what we needed to finish. Now, we can say we can get better at that. Some things did fall in the cracks. Um, Mm -hmm. Things that people had been asking for, for a number of releases, um, this is the time in this release where we got them done and got them done well. So, for example, separate date and time is something people oh, have yes. been asking for for a long, <laughs> long time, and that one's in there. Um, the merge your upsert uh, yeah. statement, which people have been asking for a long, long time, we wanted to do, and got that yeah. one in there. So there are a number of things like that, um, which you know may or may not have happened um, because the, in previous releases it relied on the force or will of one particular individual to do it or not
0: do it yeah indeed yeah no that's i think uh, the only other two comments i've had about the new process which overall i'd have to agree uh, the the quality of what's come out has been much much higher than in previous ones the the other one is how do you deal with dependencies then if all these things are built in different trees or branches of the code Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. does that mean you can't really easily take a dependency on one in another?
1: Mm, That's a great, great question. Um, That's one of the things that we knew would be an issue when we designed the process. And it's actually, if I get underneath the covers, that's one of the reasons why we came up with this notion of an improvement versus a feature. And we're actually conscious of the dependencies and we refer to an improvement as, you know, sometimes people call it an engineering transaction. And the way you think about that is, it's something that goes into the product um, that might be in support of several other improvements, um, and, but we believe any time we finish one of those, we can ship with that in the product. We're never in a situation where we feel like we have to back one of those out. Yeah. So if we had a case where we had you know three features or improvements that had interdependencies, we'd try to factor out um, you know what sort of changes or what set of changes serve the others and need to happen first, and we would do those as a separate improvement. But you would never see. Um, but if we had to stop and ship the product at that point, we could, um, yeah. and then you know subsequently do the the others that are dependent on it.
0: Yeah, that's great. And the the other thing I suppose is just that probably in this first version where you've changed to this mechanism, what it tends to mean is that the features appear more in a rush in later CTPs, mm-hmm. rather than flowing through piece by piece but I'm I'm sort of presuming that as you, you just continue this process on and in right. future versions that would probably even itself out is that the
1: yeah? so there's another example of um, an advantage we get out of this improvement model where we just integrate things when they're complete um, if you think about the older process in some sense we were held hostage um, by those set of features that were in the product but not yet complete because we weren't in a shippable state but if we're only incorporating things that are clean and complete, any time we get to a point, you know, this is, of course, taken to its extreme, but yeah. um, sort of mindset is that anytime we have the product at a point where we think we've got the right value proposition, we can kind of stop at that point, finish it off, do the final refinement, final test passes, and ship it. So this leads us to instead of this mad rush, and if I miss this release, I've got to wait another N years to get into it, we yeah. can just continuously develop things. Um, and then at some point say, hey, the train is leaving the station, um, You know, close the doors, let's finish it up and get going, and, and people can continue to work because of the branch structure, and the next train comes in and we can put the work in there and you know keep going. So it should become a little bit more continuous um, as we get going with this process and have some sort of flow with it.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I suppose the other question then in this whole process is how often you see new releases coming out, because there's always the trade-off between people wanting to see all the new things, and in the database arena in particular, stability is a, a pretty important aspect.
1: Yeah, it's a funny one because, um, well, if I talk to enterprise customers, right, they are um, they don't want them all that frequently. And I think yeah. it gets down to the point of um, how often are you going to pick them up? And if you think about the life cycle of an application um, and how many times you can... Upgrade the database underneath the application. I think mean, people are generally comfortable. If I just, you know, pull some numbers out, the enterprise customers I talk to, it feels like something in the order of three years, you know, between three, three and a half, four years. They don't want them every 18, 24 months because there's no way that they can take them all in. Yeah. And I think what it would mean if we were to release that frequently is that they would have to pick and choose in terms of which applications upgrade and not, and basically have a rolling cycle
0: of them. They would probably end up leapfrogging different versions, yeah. uh, I think there's also, I see a a major difference between ISVs and enterprises in that regard. I mean, Mm -hmm. where an enterprise has their own application, they can do, in fact, they can actually upgrade it much more readily Mm -hmm. than let's say they have an application from an ISV, and it, it's not in their control. Uh, no, a, yeah. that puts them in a much harder situation.
1: Yeah, that's a great point because you know if we release more frequently um, and the ISV feels compelled, they're going to just have more of their releases on more of our releases out in the field, and that increases their servicing costs. So yeah. there is a balance, and um, my sense is uh, natural was a little, probably a little bit less than you know. Uh, Three years for the engine, I'm just sort of speaking out loud here for a
2: The
1: other thing we've looked at is to say that maybe the engine or engines themselves, um, we don't rev them, but as we look up the stack in terms of the value that's coming out of the product now, whether it's reporting services, integration services, mining, analytics, um, that can move a fair bit faster, and and people have projects that can adopt that uh, more rapidly. And so we thought about kind of doing a model where we may release, say, every 18 months, but only rev engines underneath every other release.
0: Yeah. Yeah, in fact, that makes good sense. The One of the, uh, the things, uh, years ago, I used to be an ISV, and uh, I remember I was dealing with progress at the time, and mm-hmm. the, uh, I would have, for example, the level of testing was also the problem, is that I would go through a huge cycle of testing, let's say on version 4.2H or something, and then... At the time I went to buy licenses to supply it to customers, they would say, Oh no, that isn't available anymore. They're now 4.2 L plus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the problem is that version to me as an ISV, the fact that they've upgraded that and fixed things and whatever offers me absolutely nothing mm-hmm. because I've already been through my testing cycle and everything on 4.2 H. But mm-hmm. what it does introduce is a chance that it'll simply break something. I mean, so at worst I was, I was no upside, but but at worst, I could have a big downside where something mm-hmm. might work differently. And so uh, I, I see in the ISV community there's just a requirement to be able to uh, lock in on a particular version and to be able to continue to buy that version.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a it's a balance and it's a challenge. And um, so there's things that pull people forward and things that hold people back, you know, every time we release.
0: Yeah, indeed. The... So overall, though, the response to the new mechanism has, has been pretty positive?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I, I can talk about it from inside the building and from outside yep. the building. So I think inside the building was interesting and in that um, the people who designed the process uh, felt that really the the big wins were going to come in the end. Um,
2: yeah.
1: Rather than just scrambling and cutting and pulling our hair out, trying to get stuff to land, um, we felt you know we could get into a rhythm um, have things just actually come together quite nicely. And we're at the point, uh, in the product right now where we're seeing that. And, you know, things are looking very good. Uh, now there's a startup cost where people were trying to figure out the roles and what it really meant. And, yeah. um, so there was a lot of stress on the team, um, as we went through that. But, you know, by and large we're through that. And I think you know, we'll refine the process a little bit going forward. But, uh, people are really starting to see the value inside the building. And I think, yeah. As we get and build this muscle, that'll just, uh, you know, result in a better product uh, for the customers. Yeah. the now, outside, other... you know, yeah, the things you've seen are sort of the other challenge, right? That it, yeah. the profile looks a lot differently, and we've got to figure out how to refine how we incorporate uh, design feedback um, throughout the process.
0: Actually, there's a third group of people I'm interested in there, uh, how they relate to would be your people who look at, say, competitive things, who I'm presuming you must have some feedback or pressure that comes back and says, we just must have this feature.
1: Yeah, actually the new process um, was designed with that in mind, um, and it actually has helped us there. So I won't name the feature, but (laughs) um, there's a feature that we have in SQL Server 2008 that um, in the mid-cycle of SQL Server 2005, we recognize that trends, both in the industry and, and competitive trends, yeah, uh, meant that we really needed that feature, and we set a team off to go design it, and we scoped it, and if if there weren't so many other things going on in landing SQL Server 2005, we could have gotten it done. So, uh, but we just could not uh, deal with that additional complexity and additional scope yeah. at that point. So, in the new process, the way this would have worked is we actually have a queue of improvements. And rather than start, you know, 400 things from the beginning of the release, um, we only keep in flight and actively work those things that we can, you know, end to end. So if this same situation arises, we can take a look at it. Um, Hey, we need to respond competitively. We can design something, pop it up to the head of the queue, and just get it working and and run it through quite naturally. So it really allows us to be much more agile in that regard.
0: Yeah, that's good. Because I was wondering, the whole process seemed to make good sense to me in terms of, you could just pick a release date and then whatever was complete by that release date, if there's enough value proposition, you could just go. But I was wondering if there are just some things that you would think we simply can't ship without this thing.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, There will be those things. They're the must-haves in the release. But um, our ability to react and respond mid-flight is so much better now.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, listen, that's a good point. We might take a break there, and then we'll come back and talk about what you're most looking forward to in 2008.
1: That sounds
0: great, great. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break. Uh, Quick question, I suppose, Dave, is is there a life outside SQL Server? uh, Have you lived in Seattle for long?
1: Ah, yeah. No, there's a life outside SQL Server. I've been um out in Seattle as I said since ninety four and uh my wife and I moved out here and our kids were four and five years old, so they're pretty young and yeah um there's a point right now where actually yesterday morning I dropped off my oldest to go back to college and my youngest son Eric uh he's accepted to college so he's heading off here next year. So I guess the, the next step for Marcia and I is to figure out Uh, What we'll do next year is empty nesters.
0: Oh, empty nesters! So, are there any specific uh, hobbies or interests?
1: Yeah, yeah, no. I do some photography, and uh, my wife and I love to travel. So, one of our you know things on our items on our life list is to visit all of the national parks in the United States. Uh, We have twenty three or so, twenty three, twenty four under our belts at this point. So, wow, um, that'll keep us busy for a few years. After
0: this, I would, I would imagine there are literally, are there literally thousands of
1: them, or are they all? No, actually, there are many national historic monuments and various classifications, but um, officially designated national parks. I think there were fifty seven or eight last time I checked. And yeah, um, they they invent a new one here or there every couple years, and so.
0: yeah, well, uh, certainly if, you, if if you ever run out of them, we we have a large number of them in Australia. <laughs> so.
1: That's what I've heard. I have not been down there yet, but uh, and the size the of
0: the size of some of them are uh, breathtaking. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. I'm looking forward to it.
0: <laughs> well, listen, one uh, actually one thing that did occur to me just before we get onto straight 2008 things that I didn't ask about was operating system dependencies. Uh, you, mm-hmm. you don't get to build the product totally in isolation do, um, do you ever take a dependency on the operating system being built at the same time or would that just be too awkward
1: um actually we try not to um and the, the challenge we have is the same challenge we would have as an ISV in the sense that um we need to we have people who will upgrade the database but they'll have uh, you know the last version of the operating system,
2: yeah.
1: Um, and so we have to be very careful in terms of uh, what features we can take dependencies on and not. And they uh, have to be fairly well deployed before we can, or of significant value that we'd uh, want to say that we'll uh, prereq a particular operating system to take it. But the interesting thing is, um, you know, as the operating systems have evolved, um, we certainly make use of uh, new capabilities. So, so, yeah. You know, yeah. Things like scatter gather I.O., um, a great async I.O. model um, that we've gotten from yep. NTFS and some of the security and features. Are actually,
0: sparse, sparse files, I think, is, uh, I think database snapshots is a significant addition. Yep, so. yep, exactly. And also, I suppose, that technology, which, uh, when talking to Paul Randall and so on, it, it seems to be used in a number of other areas, too, not just in the snapshot itself. hmm yep, yep. So so I suppose with 2008, then, what are the things, the things you, you think are the, the real story with 2008?
1: The real story? Actually, uh, maybe, what level do I start? Um, here's the interesting thing for me, as yeah. someone who's worked on the product for a long time, is that uh, when we came, I tell people that you know, in some sense Microsoft was number five or six in a three-horse race. Yeah. And uh, I tell people kiddingly inside Microsoft that, um, when I started here, I people say, What do you work on? SQL Server?" And they'd look at me like, What's that? Yeah. Um, now there are very few people on Microsoft who don't know what SQL Server is, and very few <laughs> people around the industry that don't. So um, we've come a long way, but to be honest, uh, for the first few releases, uh, we were chasing taillights of uh, yeah. leaders. and so we pretty much knew what we needed to do. Um, and SQL Server two thousand and eight, honestly is, the first release were pretty much across the board uh we could say hey what are we going to do uh to tell our own story what can we do to differentiate ourselves and add uh, value that the other you know would be different than uh, what the guys guys have traditionally done and so um, it's been a great opportunity to start that
0: actually one of the things that is kind of interesting uh with the company is that you've got such a strong part of the company that uh working with developers all the time mm-hmm. and one of the things i've noticed is that uh, it, i've done a lot of work in the development community as well it's just a very different type of community to to what i've seen in the sql server area in fact one of the reasons i started doing the podcast and things are these are all things that i see working in the developer community yet they hadn't sort of infiltrated uh, the sql server side of things more um, mm-hmm. as yet and still one of the, the things that i see is a bit of a disconnect that I'd be interested in your thoughts on, is extensibility. Because uh, if I, I see, I would have thought Microsoft had a, a, a major chance to have a much, much stronger extensibility story than anybody else, uh, g- given the developer side of the company and all the focus as well. Yet when I look in the developer division, nearly every product being built seems to offer large amounts of extensibility. Uh, they seem to expose public interfaces, make it easy to do all sorts of extensibility. Yet one of the things I've been frustrated with in the SQL Server side is there seems to be a, a sort of a discussion where extensibility will come in the future, and and we always seem to be sort of chasing when that will occur. Yet I think if, if they were a little more prepared to open up an extensibility story, it just allows a much richer community to be built around it. And I just don't know. If, that's an off the top, but I just wonder if you have any thoughts in that area.
1: Yeah, no. It's um, I answer that one in the following way. When we did the SQL CLR integration for SQL Server 2005, um, yep. it was a tremendous amount of work. Uh, it was very good work, and in some sense, I see that as a down payment. Um, and we haven't fully realized the, the value from that. So you'll see some things in SQL Server 2008 and features where we started to use that. Yeah. Um, but we will use that going forward as the basis uh, for uh, more extensibility in the database. And um, I think that will serve two communities. It will serve SQL Server itself uh, because we will implement more and more features and it will allow us to have uh, a broader group of people providing more value that's you know above the core um, base of the engine um, and we'll make it available to others so that they can extend and uh, provide value that way as well. A- interesting note, um, I was looking through your website or before you called this evening yeah. and noticed that you had done an, an interview with Jim Gray uh, sometime time yes. in the past. And Jim was always sort of whacking me upside the head saying, you guys are nuts because this SQL CLR stuff is amazing and you're not even telling the story. And, uh, you know, he was right. And as we talked to more and more people in say, the scientific or you know, bioinformatic or other communities, um, once they get in there and realize what can be done, uh, they're just blown away. And I think you know part of it is us telling the story and, in some sense, completing the story. And we moved it out there for SQL Server 2008, and uh, we're in discussions right now about how to do that more aggressively going forward. Yeah,
0: it, Look, it is one I'd love to see because even when I go to sessions, say, for example, I went to... Uh, one on the, um, declarative management things and mm-hmm. immediately they say, here's a list of facets. And I'm, i I fall, I find I'm always the one in the room putting my hand up saying, how do I, can I build one of those facets? And they go, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and it, it's like it, it's not, it, and yet I think internally cl- clearly they will have well-defined interfaces. They'll have all of the things that would be required to allow you to do that. Mm-hmm. and the SQL CLR mechanisms and everything in there would, again, provide the right basis for that. But it's the whole, it always, to me, it always sort of strikes me that the thinking is always down the track in, in that sort of regard, uh, yeah. where it often strikes me that version one of a product is when there's the biggest holes in it, and if you have the chance for extensibility, everybody can rush in and help fill the
1: holes. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree with that in principle. I think one of yeah. the challenges that we have you know, that's a little bit peculiar to the database space um, is that there are, we'll take you know, query processing, there are yeah. inherent non-linearities in the sense that um, slightest little things will perturb the optimizer and make the difference between having a query run in a half a second and running five <laughs> minutes. And,
0: oh, yes. <laughs> um,
1: if we offer extensibility, we also have to make sure that we can offer extensibility around how you would describe the extensions in a way that the optimizer can reason over them. And, um, in the declarative management framework case, I think it's more, uh, you know, we can architect it for extensibility. And, but then how do we constrain it, um, such that we know that all the policies will converge and be consistent? And, uh, yep. so in some cases, I think, uh, given the nature that people are betting their business on this, um, we would tend to be a little bit more conservative. Uh, in in do it uh, sort of over the course of a couple of releases rather than make that be the way to fill in the gaps uh, in the first shot.
0: Yeah. Oh, look, now, I, I totally understand that that usually has been the approach. And it uh, just interests me at contrast with, say, the ASP.NET guys when they tend to build things and they'll say, uh, here's our membership provider. But if you don't like it, there's, there's, there is a clear interface and you can hook your own in. Or mm-hmm. um, To me, where it really hits more is in the tooling uh, For example, the fact that I can't build a supported add-in for Management Studio uh, today, things like that, which when you have more and more and more developers working with the product, uh, they think, oh, I can do that in Visual Studio. Why why can't I do that in in Management Studio? Uh, And the odd part is that what you end up with is invariably is that everybody who does, they still do it, but they do it as hacks instead of doing it in a supported way. Mm.
1: Well, that's interesting feedback, yeah, in, in the tool space. That is interesting. And uh, we can consider that going forward.
0: Mm. So any, anyway, that, that's a pet one now. But, yeah, so look, so 2008, so the big big picture thing, so you think you're starting to get to a, a leading position rather than always following.
1: Yeah. So let me tell you some of the things I think are pretty cool about this this release. So the um, you mentioned one of them already. Uh, the declarative management framework, I think, is... Uh, going to be very interesting as it, you know, plays out over the course of several releases. And um, and there's another piece that the entity framework, and what I typically do when I talk to um, sort of senior folks at companies, is is I'll start describing one or the other. And I can do this in like two minutes. I'll give you a quick rundown. So in declarative management framework, one way of thinking about it is that, you know, a lot of people have a lot of SQL servers um, because they're easy to deploy and, you know, do a great job and they wind up being surprised that they have so many SQL servers and even though each SQL server itself is fairly easy to manage um, when you have a lot of them uh, it's still a fair bit of work to make sure that everything is configured properly and such and so imagine you have a thousand SQL servers in your environment you probably only have five or six classes um, of service in which they fall, you know, there's some under the some yeah. desk, you don't really back them up or anything, they are work group solutions, mission critical solutions. So if you could define a policy for each one of those classes and then rather than having to go around and, you know, turn knobs to make sure that they were consistent with that policy, if you could just define it um, and then basically bind the policy to it or when you add a new server and, you know, which policy is it adhered to, uh, that's sort of one way of framing the declarative management framework. Um, And ultimately, as you said, you'd be able to write your own policies and compose them and such. So that, I think, is um, you'll see the first glimpse of that in uh, SQL Server 2008, and we'll just build out from there. Um, And the other interesting one is the entity framework, where uh, we – I'll describe it this way. When we first started working on the product 10 years ago, all of the features or the services that we offered over the data – were expressed and built in terms of the logical relational schema, in terms of tables and rows, if you will. Um, but starting with, uh, say, SQL Server 7, when we did merge replication, um, some of those new services really should have been built on higher-level concepts. And merge replication is interesting because you actually set up publications and tables, and people want to uh, synchronize or replicate orders not the order headers and the line items tables separately.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And they want to keep them
0: You endlessly also had the question, which said, "How do I send an order to a stored procedure?" Yep. <laughs> and again, exactly. at least now we have a good answer with that, with the table-valued parameters as well.
1: Yep, yep. And so the, at the and you go off to the next step and you think about designing cubes and analysis services. Um, we have the UDM, but really, you want to build information cubes out of things that make sense to um, the business. So you want to describe orders by region, by quarter, or such, um, and not have to worry about how to do the joins and the tables beneath to form them. Um, same thing with uh, you know, doing reporting, and in particular, report builder, of so an end user uh, reporting tool. So within SQL Server, we wound up with N different ways of describing these things and, uh, and then put that all together, started to put it all together in this release with the Entity Framework. Um, And in this release, we provide it as a developer feature, but in subsequent releases, you'll actually see SQL Server itself be recast uh, many of the services in terms of these entities. So that those two things are interesting, but here's where I think it gets really interesting, (laughs) is that we will be able to, uh, in the roadmap, sort of tag these entities or the attributes of the entities um, with various characteristics and then write policies against that. So you can imagine things like if I have an entity that's got an attribute, uh whereby I say it's a uh, credit card number it's financially sensitive so i tag it as financially sensitive then i can write policies at some point against financially sensitive attributes and say that any database in which a uh, schema or entity models installed that has uh, one of these attributes i can write a policy that says all backups you know may be have to be on encrypted media or all you know clients that connect to the database must do so over an encrypted channel and so it becomes very very interesting when we can start to write policies against uh, the model of the data, in fact, in a, the instance level of the data. So um, that would be very, very interesting moving forward.
0: Yeah. In In fact, uh, that it's interesting you mention that because one of the things I had been discussing with Buck and the guys uh, when talking about the, the declarative management framework things was exactly that, as I would want to be able to set policies that, that say, you know, when I have a column that even has the word credit card in it, then that gets... Potentially dealt with in a different way or whatever mm-hmm. um, And another thing Though that I think is to me Looks like a missing piece in that story uh, Is The idea that the DDL triggers At the moment are always after triggers Not mm-hmm. uh, any concept of an Instead of or before trigger mm-hmm. uh, Because if I want to set a policy that said For example uh, You you can't re-index The tables in the middle of the day mm-hmm. uh, Or things like that uh, At there are so many things that I can't undo, like create database, for example, in a trigger, yet even if I could undo re- redoing the indexing, uh, I wouldn't want to. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so uh, there seems to be a, a real need to be able to, in a DDL trigger, to be able to run code instead of what what's intended. Mm-hmm. Um, another aspect where I see that as sort of fairly powerful is that I would like, for example, to be able to just write code in a a loose format and uh, formatting-wise, and then whenever I issue a uh, create proc statement, for example, have a trigger that would format it nicely before it put it in the database and or apply various standards or commenting or automatically put um, my own signature on it or something, or just all sorts of things that if you had the ability to modify it on the fly, like you do with a DML trigger, that would be kind of powerful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'd describe it, if I look at it from the perspective of an architect or someone designing this, I mean, one of the things we start with is, you know, separation of mechanism and policy, and um, the challenge is, if you're trying to do something that is very large and broad, and I think declarative management framework, um, you want to make sure that the architecture has legs, and it's something that you can yeah. build out over several releases. Um, and then what you try to do in the first release is to get the most, uh, you know, most value with the least amount of change in the product. And so, um, if you look at some of the things right now, it's basically how can you reuse existing mechanism um, and target it and get the model right, um, and then build out that architecture over several releases. And there are examples of where we did that from 7.0 on. So uh, one example is the online page restore. We knew we wanted to do that feature. We made sure the architecture was consistent with that, and we did SQL 7.0, um, and we didn't write the feature until SQL Server 2005. And that one was kind of under the covers. You didn't see it, but I think you'll see the, f- the same sort of thing happen with DMF over the next couple of releases as we yeah. fill it out uh, in a way that's consistent with the architecture and all that it can do. On
0: a, on a similar vein, one, one of the ones uh, that I've noticed, that I, I loved the move in SQL Server 2005 to doing everything via standard DDL statements Mm -hmm. rather than having a dependency on lots of uh, system-stored procs. Mm -hmm. It it strikes me that in 2008 I'm seeing a lot more system-stored procs Mm -hmm. coming back into the product, and I just wonder if you have a a feeling on that. So, for example, if I go to turn on uh, change data capture, for example, I now have all these uh, interestingly named long... Uh, system stored procs. But the concern I have with that is that that means I then can't do a policy, for example, that says you can't do change data capture on credit card columns.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, That is a challenge that um, as the group scales and such, one of the things that we put in place in the new process is something we call fundamentals. Um, and we have fundamentals around security, or fundamentals around naming this and that, and um, and that's something that you know we will refine going forward to make sure that and the the state that we found ourselves in was uh, in the sidebase heritage, everything was stored prox. and then we started to add more things into you know formal DDl. and um, frankly, the DDL was more expensive to do end to end. and um, again, it gets back to there might have been one person before who was the guy pushing to move everything into DDl and um, so this is something that needs to be captured going forward in one of our fundamentals, and make sure that we're just looking after it um, as a matter of process rather than a matter of one one person's uh, yeah. will to do it.
0: Well, so, I think otherwise, it, it, you run the chance of one thing undoing the other. So, yeah. for example, if I set a policy that says you can't name tables this way, yeah. and then somebody names a table something else, calls SP rename. Now they were talking about putting something in that catches the fact that you're doing sp rename but to me that's sort of round the wrong way you would think you should be replacing sp rename with uh, alter object with name equals or something mm-hmm. like that so it's so that it fits with the standard ddl triggers and mechanism and the whole because i think it then has that flow on effect where you you do good work in the dmf area but but if somebody's if that only works off DDL statements then somebody else is not building DDL statements you, you've got that challenge
1: yeah again I think that's something that you'll see us refine uh, going forward and just sort of uh, clean it up and head in one direction so yeah and, and I'm, right. I'm a guy I like the DDL myself
2: <laughs>
0: oh look I, I it was an area I thought was a really really good move in 2005 I love love to see it now, in terms of the engine, uh, everybody seems to be getting some pretty good feedback in terms of the performance in 2008? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything you think is particularly uh, strong uh, discussion there?
1: Well, actually, so there's lots of things. The question is where to start. <laughs> uh-huh. So one of the things that I didn't mention yet with respect to the process is that um, we have these notions of scenarios, and these are end-to-end value propositions, if you will. and One of the scenarios that we took on for SQL Server 2008 was data warehousing at scale. So um, we looked we realized a lot of people um, looking at the BI capabilities of the product, and um, when we looked at the market, we found that we were doing very, very well, uh, very well represented in transaction processing. And perhaps, you know, we had room to grow and could do better in uh, data warehousing, particularly sort of in the data warehousing back end. So and this data warehousing at scale, um, we looked at what it would take end-to-end, and we defined the scenario, and we defined it in terms of the size of a data warehouse, uh, in terms of how much data was turned over each day, in terms of what the uh, performance expectations were. And so before we even actually went to the board to design um, the set of features that would make that up, we had in mind um, what sort of performance we'd look to get out of this thing end-to-end across all components. Um, and whether it's um, ETL and integration services or whether it's uh, in the query processor and such. So we did a fair bit of work in terms of um, parallelism you know, in partition, partitioning is one example. Um, did some optimizer improvements in terms of star and snowflake schema, and uh, so there's a, a lot of improvement there. Uh, in full-text search, um, we've done some work that's had some dramatic uh, speed-ups in certain things, um, the ability to use the merge statement instead of having to detect or do an update or insert, um, dramatic uh, improvements in some some cases there. So there are a lot of things to talk about in that space.
0: The sort of row constructor type things as well, so that uh, or table mm-hmm. constructors I think they're called. The uh, yep, but yep. yeah, certainly we're in a single statement. We can now do multiple operations.
1: Yep, yep. No, people make great use of that. Um, a lot of ISVs uh, are, have been asking for that for a long time.
0: Yeah. In fact, one of the discussions that ra- that raised the other day I don't know if there is, but as to what the limit is on the size of a statement uh currently in the product and where that would be most limited, I'm um, just trying to think if you had an insert and you just generated on the fly and you just kept putting more and more rows in the one statement as to yeah you, that would be the next thing as you'd finally eventually come across some limit there, I suppose.
1: I so. I don't know what to use
0: offhand. So. <laughs> no, in fact, I, I can't even imagine. I'm sure it's large. Seven years
1: ago, I might have known, Greg.
0: But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's large. The, uh, yeah. the, in fact, what do you think you're uh, overall with the product though? Going to be most proud about with this version?
1: I think uh, the product team itself will be most proud of um, the polish on it when it goes out. And okay. Uh, I think just end to end, things are going to be there. Here's a funny little thing inside, you know, uh, ever since seven zero, there's a time in the product where the leadership team looks and they say, do we have the right value proposition? Is there enough in there? And, um, it took a, to be honest, it took some time for us to get this process up and running. And, uh, we were sort of remaking the process and trying to redo the product and, you know, time was going by and people getting anxious, and how are we going to get enough? Is there going to be a meaningful release? Well, sometime about four or six months ago, we stopped and we looked at the velocity we had and things going in and the fact that they were going in cleanly um, and getting some early feedback. And um, right now we just know uh, we've got the, the value in the product um, and the feedback we're getting out of CTP5 and what we're seeing in terms of the internal uh um, the feedback is that uh, we've got the quality. So I think people yeah. are just going to feel good at the end when it goes out and goes out cleanly and uh, works well for everyone.
0: Yeah, that's great. In fact, one of the discussions I heard the other day I thought was interesting is that they said the first point in the product where analysis services and or data mining started to get added were a significant turning point. Do you mm-hmm. think Spatial will be the same?
1: Spatial has been really interesting in that... Um Ed Kayataba is the PM on spatial, and I hired him two years ago to come in and start working on that. And he uh, has been doing spatial stuff in and around databases for maybe 20 years or so. And um, he walked into my office a couple months ago, and he was kind of scratching his head. He said, I can't believe this. He said, "Uh, We've got this spatial stuff in here, and the the feedback is just amazing. He goes, This is going to be a blowout. And he he was stunned. and the reason I kind of convinced him to come to Microsoft. I said, "Look, the thing that's interesting about working here um is that if you do something big, it's really big because it impacts you know such a wide range uh, of people. And I think that there's a, a number of factors coming together um, that just make spatial be so important, and yeah. the fact that the SQL server just has it in there, it's going to make it that much more approachable. So I, the cell phone I have right now has a true GPS receiver in it. Yeah. So inside the building, you know, someone's putting together a web service where we'll stick in SQL Server. So if we want, you know, we can subscribe and push our you know, A whole bunch of us have these phones now. You know, push it up there. We can all find out where each other is at any point in time. Yes. So it's, it's just stunning.
0: <laughs> yeah, in fact, uh, I, I noticed that even with the phones that don't have that, uh, there are now services that will try and do a rough triangulation based upon yep. your cell towers as, as to where you are. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, so no, you, you can get sort of information. But yeah, the ones with the GPS, it's, it's, uh, truly awesome. Yeah, there are days where I think it's
1: that, a really good thing and days where I think it's a really bad thing. <laughs> yeah, for indeed. people to know exactly where I
0: am. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you think it's got, so do you think it really does have a chance of being a big turning point in the industry?
1: Um, I think in that, in that realm it will. Um, and the other thing that I think is going to be a sleeper, which uh, we talked about, is the sync framework, uh, yeah. which we took on. And uh, the experience, here's the, what I think people really want. And the experience that people get, say, with Exchange and Outlook and Cache Mode and be able to have it on your device and have an experience where I can walk up and get a browser-based experience and have a rich client experience, um, and it's all over the same data, and it's all synchronized, and it's you know, synchronized opportunistically when I can get connected. Uh, people would love to build those applications. And a lot of ISVs would love to build it, and mobility is really hot. Um, but it is so hard right now to do that. And yeah. the, some of the developer-centric features we have in SQL Server 2008 and Orcus, um, uh, Visual Studio 2008, and, uh, will make that so much easier. Yeah. But I think uh, many many people can go off and build those style of applications.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think that's the thing is that the apps aren't that hard to build, but the plumbing is. Yep. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is that over time, our what we want to do to enrich the platform is to move some things from app to platform. And I yeah. think you, you just go back and you look over the you know history of computing that happens all the time. Um, and some of these services that. People would love to get. If you think of how many person years the exchange and outlook teams put into making that all work, um, it's a tremendous amount of effort. And if we can make that be part of the platform and make that accessible to a broad range of developers, um, that'll be powerful.
2: Yeah.
0: What What about the BI story in this version?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a BI lot of stuff. things
0: seem yeah, to get ahead. added. A lot of things seem to get added at Service Pack 2 of 2005. Mm-hmm. So kind of got an early taste of some of the things with that area. But mm-hmm. it still seems to be a very good story coming in this as well.
1: Yeah. No, the, the BI story is uh, amazing for me because I came from the engine side. Yeah. And when we started this thing, you know, SQL Server was the engine in the client access libraries. And then we had these OLAP guys. We said, what the heck are these guys doing? What is that OLAP thing? Um, and uh, I talked to – we have this executive briefing center. I do a fair number of talks there. And um, over the last several years – so many people are just clamoring uh, for BI, and they realize that there's such a competitive advantage to getting more information out of their data. And for many businesses, um, that is the difference nowadays. And um, I think the thing, from my observation, that we've got going with the BI is that it is very easy to deploy um, and very easy to get up and running. And uh, so there's a lot of new stuff coming in SQL Server 2008, uh, a lot of um, performance enhancements and analysis services, uh, scale enhancements and reporting services, uh, new capabilities and reporting services, integration services, you know, expands in, in several different dimensions. And so uh, it is, frankly, driving a lot of um, you know, SQL Server deployments at this point.
2: Yeah.
0: Actually, that that does raise one topic I'd like to raise with you. The um, I'm interested that the whole concept of SQL Server as an app platform or not. Mm-hmm. And it was a discussion I, I sat and watched, again, one of the... Uh, you mentioned Jim Gray before, some of the videos he had up on Channel 9. Mm-hmm. And in that, he was discussing the whole idea of multi-tiered applications as opposed to getting more and more back to a two-tier type model. And mm-hmm. he was arguing that simplicity usually wins. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just sort of wondered, there's always the discussion about how much of an application server, SQL server, should be as opposed to a database engine.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting one. Um, So I wrote uh, did a paper for one of the conferences several years ago that was meant to be a provocative paper around this topic. (laughs) And um, Jim Gray was sort of uh, features in the history of this as well because if you go back to the early 90s, um, there was this point at which if you built a real application, you used a TP monitor my Transaction Processing Monitor. And um, databases came along and started to do a a number of the things that the Transaction Processing Monitor had done. So in terms of thread pooling, in terms of transaction coordination, certain other things. And so this uh, debate, if you go back and search for it, it uh, was coined sort of two-ball or three-ball, you know, to use the Transaction Processing Monitor or not. And so I sort of did a play on that. Um, and, and basically, what we called um, these databases and the capabilities back in the early 90s was TP Light, so Transaction Processing Light. Yeah. So I did sort of a follow-on thing a couple of years ago, and um, basically, the title of the paper involved this notion of App Server Light. And when you look at us, you know, putting the CLR inside the database server, when you think about being able to serve web services out of the database server and such, um, you have a case where you could sort of collapse things down into there now. I think just as in the case of you know two-tier, three-tier, two-ball, three-ball, um, some scenarios will warrant one or the other. Yeah. Uh, there were many cases where it was much simpler and, in some cases, more efficient uh, to do things in and around the database server when they had those capabilities and to you know, bring the TT uh, monitor yeah. into play. So I think the same thing um, will play out, and uh, it's just a matter of what makes sense in what environment.
0: Yeah, actually, it was interesting noting uh also, I, I suppose it almost leads into service broker things, but the whole mm-hmm. idea of being able to get multiple things or mu- equivalent of multi-threading happening because of the number of processes and things involved. And one of the beauties of SQL Server is always that it's been built for environments with large numbers of processes from the, uh, from the early days, mm-hmm. where uh, the... the Interesting talk, Uh, I sat and had a talk to Jim Gray while I was um, in Dallas a year or so back, and I liked the way he described uh, trying to learn to write multi-threaded processes uh, or programs. He was saying that there's the early phase where you look at it and it all just looks like voodoo, and then there's the phase where you think you understand it, but then there's a third phase where you actually get wise. (laughs) And you realize it was actually a lot harder than you thought. That's right, that's right. (laughs) And you really didn't understand it. And I I think that seems to be one of the challenges is somehow to allow people to write what is single-threaded code and yet have it take really good advantage of large numbers of processes. And SQL Server seems to be one of the things that does that pretty, I mean, by its nature.
1: Yeah. interesting thing that sort of makes that possible, um, if you think of SQL as a language. In some cases how you express the problem can aid you. So SQL as a declarative language, I express what I want in terms of a query and you know an answer. And um it's at a level that allows the underlying machinery to factor and parallelize um and basically marry up the resources and do all of the magic underneath the covers. So someone can express a query, it looks fairly simple. And we can take a look at it and see. Hey, we've got you know several CPUs here available. Listen that, refactor the query, parallelize it. You know, coordinate the results. Um, and if you were to express it at a lower level, we may not be able to do that. You know, refactoring and decomposition. So, mm-hmm. part of it's you know where do you how do you capture it? Um, another example of that is in cases where you have uh, sort of multi-threaded runtimes, um, but at the where the programmer interacts with it, basically they're just getting a call out and implementing. Um, sort of event handlers and such, and and we can look at that for more and more of the code running inside the server. So uh, it would provide a pretty interesting scalable environment for that.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting when you get into that app server discussion because it was sort of uh, one of the points he was making. He said that if you had two machines interacting and each can be in 10 different states, then as soon as you have asynchronous callbacks and things happening suddenly you've got a hundred possible states mm-hmm. and he said as soon as you start getting into that sort of discussion you really quickly want to get back to the possibly 20 different states and he was suggesting that queues in between them were were one of the ways to do that at least if you put things in a queue and it got taken out of the queue um, I'm just interested service broker seems a really logical fit for that in 2005, I've been quite excited about Service Broker and finally getting it implemented in a, large number, a larger number of sites. Um, the tooling was always the thing that uh, was missing, uh, obviously in the previous version, really. But what's your feeling as to take up Service Broker-wise?
1: So Service Broker is interesting. In fact, uh, I was one of the early folks in, on Service Broker um, with Pat Helland, uh, some folks know, and Gerald Henson, and... Um, uh, the service Broker is really interesting, very interesting technology. Um, and I, again, it gets into this question of mechanism and policy and how you express it. Our mm-hmm. focus for that first release is making sure that we had the right mechanism, the, the core of it. Yeah. And um, we always envisioned um, basically several different programming models over it. Um, and uh, for people in SQL Server 2005, the experience they had was, People say, what is this thing? And it was kind of interesting to watch people go through Maybe you went through this experience yourself. What is this? I don't know. And they kind of go scratch their head and they work with it, this and that. And for those who stuck with it, there was this aha moment. Yes. They said, wow, (laughs) this thing, hold on. And then they stepped back and rethought a whole bunch of things um, and actually have done some very, very interesting things with it. And one of the things I think is fascinating is that by putting in durable queues between these things, as we get more uh, in you know distributed system distributed services, uh, a lot of people worry about you know sort of state transfer in a consistent way and start thinking about transactions spanning these things. Yeah and I was one of the guys that actually I did the resource manager for SQL Server, and Pat was working on the distributed transaction coordinator. So we were working on you know two- phase commit and distributed transactions when we first got to Microsoft. Yeah. And both went off and, you know, started doing some things with, uh, service broker. And distributed transactions, uh, are, are great when things are very close, but as things get farther apart, then, uh, you really want to be able to pass things off in a way that is reliable, but not as tightly coupled as what's implied, um, by distributed yeah. transactions. And service broker really fits that build nicely
0: so yeah i think as you as you're building larger and larger and more complicated systems it, it's actually the decoupling is the thing that i keep stressing to people about this whole area is mm-hmm. that a traditional thing seems to be to just keep building bigger and bigger monolithic procs and so on and mm-hmm. and everything is just super tightly coupled and right. you just built you're building a house of cards when you do that it, it's
1: exactly
0: very fragile where yeah service broker has that do you I haven't had a look yet had a chance yet to have a look at any of the tooling coming for that. Is there anything much in the way of tooling coming for
1: you frankly projects? we didn't take the programming models as far you know you know actually forward for SQL server two thousand and eight, so we didn't do too much there. Um, we did some work in the admin, so the setup and monitoring, yep. and you know how do you know what's happening there um, yep. and that's something we'll probably have to get back on uh, after two thousand and eight yeah but the the interesting thing when you say decoupling in this case is. It's decoupling in terms of space, decoupling in terms of time in terms of security context and um, it allows you to reason about as you well know reason about the problem in smaller pieces and get them right yes. and then connect it up in a reliable fashion so that it continues to work and scale so yeah um, I'd encourage and, all of those to you know, go through the effort to figure it out because uh, in many <laughs> yeah. cases the reward is uh, pretty significant.
0: Yeah, in fact, the aha moment for me came, there's uh, Roger Walter's little book. Uh, he's got mm-hmm. one on Rational Press. And uh, the other thing I quite liked about his little book, A, it was quite readable in a short period of time, but I found it also had some insights that I would not have picked up on by, by just reading the materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in fact, th- things like the difference between a conversation and a dialogue, for example, mm-hmm. and, and, and that sort mm-hmm. of thing, which which I really struggled with when I f- first started to look at it, so...
1: Yeah, there's some interesting subtleties that we went through in terms of design. You know, one of the things you want to do in a transaction processing system is to, um, as things get more active, and there's more activity going on. You want to naturally trade uh, latency for throughput. And yeah. by that I mean, as more and more work comes in, you want the system to respond gracefully. And so, for example, the way we do that in a transaction log is something that's called group commit. Yeah. And the way to define that is, you can only write. The transaction log, let's say I'm on a single disk. Maybe I can only write the transaction log disk 150 times a second. Um, But we can certainly do more transactions than that. We do that by naturally batching them up. And the service broker in conversation locking gives us that same form of behavior. So as more and more messages pile in and things get hotter and hotter, we can actually do more and more work um, with each gulp, if you will, Um, So it has this very nice characteristic of naturally trading latency for throughput in those cases. Um, So it really scales.
0: Actually, the the last topic in amongst this is, I suppose, there are changes in reporting services where it now doesn't sit behind IIS. Mm -hmm. And previously we had or have currently um, HTTP endpoints and so on exposed from the product. I'm just sort of wondering where you see that side of things heading uh, in that, again, it's part of the app server discussion regarding SQL Server.
2: Mm.
1: So, uh, so the way I'll answer that is that um, on SQL Server, uh, I'll even go back beyond that. So the history of all databases has been that um, the enterprise databases, in some sense, they're an operating system themselves. So yeah. SQL Server has its basically its own user mode threading package. It's got its own concurrency primitives, as do most other databases. And, I tell the operating system guys, hey, give us an address space in I.O., and we'll take it from there. And um, we built a very interesting runtime uh, at the bottom of SQL Server, and uh, that runtime is an interesting component for a lot of high-scale, multi-threaded applications. And uh, so we decided to take uh, reporting services and re-host it on top of that component um, for this release. Yeah, so that's a big change I, I there. I think that
0: will, that will actually help a lot with, uh, deployments as well. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, yeah. I think there's a good story there with that, so. Yeah,
1: that's the objective. Yeah. And of course, the, the operating system guys did a great job in terms of, um, htv.sys, yeah, uh, splitting, splitting it, it for the listener, right? The and, and that, yeah. that was the other piece that sort of made this all come together.
0: Yeah. No, in fact, yeah, that made a big, de- I think it also, that's right, it allowed a number of applications to suddenly become clients to that same cool. driver. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, that's great. Well, so that pretty much brings us up to time. So, look, I have to thank you for your time, David, it's, uh, and the insight's been really excellent. The Is there anywhere that we'll see you or things coming up? Or...
1: Well, um, I haven't headed down doing a bunch of stuff. I think I'll pop up and get out on the road a bit during the launch activities in the next couple of months, and um, I know we have a lot of worldwide launches. I've never been yeah. south of the equator, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Go head down your way. Right. That'd, be,
0: that'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah. I was going yeah. to say we have uh, what, an outstanding event we have is in October. There's, uh, we're out at Wagga Wagga. We have an, uh, a sequel down under Code Camp for the whole weekend. So if you ever really want to see the the outer part of the country, it's, uh, it's in the middle of nowhere and it's sequel people for the whole weekend. Yeah. So. You know,
1: that sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> How's the weather
0: in October? Uh, it's warm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's warm. Well, listen, so thank you again for your time, David. It's been absolutely excellent.
1: My pleasure, Greg. Good chatting with you. Uh All right. Bye-bye.